Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Pygmonic. On their behalf, I hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 11 with Dr. Bruce Perry. For the past 20 years, Dr. Bruce Perry has been an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and the neurosciences. His work has been instrumental in describing how negative childhood experiences can change the biology of the brain and thus the health of the child. He has been the government's consultant for incidents involving traumatized children, such as the Branch Davidian siege, the Columbine school shootings, the September 11th terrorist attacks, Katrina and Rita hurricanes, among many others. And for Sunday's 60 Minutes, Oprah traveled to Milwaukee, that's where she grew up, to learn about a revolutionary approach in the city to childhood trauma. She talked to Dr. Bruce Perry. He's a world's leading expert on early trauma. He's treated survivors of high-profile events before. I hope that our story on trauma-informed care will not just be impactful, but will also be revolutionary. I strongly believe that the evidence-based science that backs your work is the precursor to revolutionizing the way that we look at healthcare, the development of our youth, and how wealth disparity, politics, and inequality can contribute to chronic disease and mental health problems. That very same sensitivity that makes you able to learn language just like that as a little infant makes you highly vulnerable to chaos, threat, inconsistency, unpredictability, Violence. violence. And so children are much more sensitive to developmental trauma than adults. So if you're a child who's raised in a nurturing and well-cared-for environment, you're more likely to have a well-wired brain. Correct. And if you're a child who's raised in an environment of chaos, of uncertainty, of violence, of neglect, you are being wired differently. Differently. And, and typically in a way that makes you more vulnerable. Kids that grow up like that have much higher rates of risk for mental health problems, much higher rates of risk for doing poorly in school. For just functioning in the world. Exactly. Uh, One of the things that we're learning more and more about is how unpredictability, chaos, overt threat, significant exposure to violence changes your stress response system. And now there's a lot to that, but one of the One of the core problems with that is that if you're really, really tuned up and you have this continuous state of sort of fear that you're living with, when you go to school, even if it's a good school, you can't learn very well because parts of your brain that would normally be open for learning are shut down because your brain's saying, that's not that important right now. What's really important is who's connected to who, what's going on outside there, am I gonna get hurt? This story is so important to me and I believe to our culture that if I could dance on the tabletops right now to get people to pay attention to it, I would. It has definitively uh, changed the way I see people in the world. I asked Bruce Perry this question, who's head of the Child Trauma Institute. I grew up on welfare, poor, uh, a lot of negative experiences, sexual abuse and all of that. What's the difference between a really bad childhood and being able to overcome that and a traumatic childhood and someone not being able to overcome that. If you also have opportunities to be connected to people in positive ways, Mm -hmm. uh, that can buffer 
yeah. some of those effects. Human beings are fundamentally relational creatures. Every single part of your brain, every single part of your skin, your face, your eyes are dedicated to forming and maintaining relationships because the truth is it wasn't our brains that kept us alive, it was our collective brains that kept us alive. We survived because we were able to work together, cooperative hunting, cooperative sharing of things that we gathered. It was the relational capability of the brain that allowed us to survive and it is the relational capability of the brain that continues to give us our best gifts. So everybody needs somebody growing up that says, I believe in you, you're okay, things are gonna be all right. And that can be a teacher, that can be a coach, that could be somebody in Sunday school. You, know? you say that the most important question to ask of people who have gone through trauma is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. Yeah. So when you see, you know, a church being shot up or you see, you know, all of the headline making uh, stories of people seemingly gone mad, mm. your first thought is what happened to that person? Right. Right. Of all the stories I've ever done in my life and all of the experiences I've ever had and people I've interviewed, this story has had more impact on me than practically anything I've ever done. And one of the great things about human species is that we have this remarkable organ, the brain, that allows us to take the accumulated experiences of thousands of previous generations, internalize it in a relatively short period of time, take that content, manipulate it, reflect on it, and invent new things. When we do this inventing process in synchrony with our biology, we see quantum leaps in productivity, creativity, invention, and in humanity. But when we do the inventing process at odds with our biology, we lose, we're inefficient, we spend money, effort, energy, and we don't get where we want. The best way to get cognitive content into your brain, to learn things, to learn math, is in rhythm and in relationship. Those of you who know anything about science will appreciate this, when you teach a class where there's 30 kids and one teacher, a topic, you get a certain uptake of that content. If you take a child and you teach that same content to them one-on-one -on -one with a tutor, there's a two sigma shift in the uptake of that content. In other words, the kid who had the hardest time, the most struggles with learning that content, would actually learn the content more efficiently in a one-on-one -on -one relationship more efficiently than the person who was at the top of the class. And so when I said rhythm, the reason I said rhythm is that anybody who feels dysregulated, if you move, if music, rhythmic conversation, relational connection, all these things quiet your stress response system and make you capable of learning. And so- You're saying that hip hop heals? Absolutely, I'm, I'm, I am saying hip hop heals. Yeah, yeah. What happens is you have to see, this is what happened to me. This is why I behave the way I do. This is why I have such a short anger response. This is why I can't, I can't concentrate. This is why it's hard for me to keep a job. This is why, and now that I understand it, it's not an excuse, it's just an explanation. Oh, well, now I know why I behave that way. It's fantastic. According to the National Library of Medicine, it is now scientifically proven that the environment we grow up in has a direct impact on our brain development. Research from animal and human models suggests that early life stress, such as abuse, witnessing domestic violence, and serious household dysfunction that occurs while mom is pregnant or after birth during the first few days of life, weeks, or months of life, 
may be particularly influential for neurodevelopment or brain-related outcomes. This is because the stress occurs at a time when brain systems are rapidly organizing. For example, a baby's brain is making about 20,000 brand new neurons per second. Compare that to the average adult who makes about 400 neurons a day. Recall that in last month's episode with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, we connected the CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, study to chronic disease and mental health. The thing that alarmed me most as a physician was that individuals who have six or more ACEs die on average 20 years earlier than those who grow up in a stable environment. Well, we can't complete the conversation without looking at how the brain forms during our experiences during childhood, also called neurodevelopment. That's why today, we're bringing you the world's leading expert on childhood trauma. This is the man that Oprah goes to when she wants to learn about childhood trauma. Dr. Bruce Perry is a psychiatrist and has a PhD in neuroscience. My mentor, Dr. Patricia Rush, is currently working on different projects with him, and she introduced our organization to his book and his work. In his best-selling book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, Dr. Perry explains what happens inside the brains of children exposed to extreme stress and shares their lessons of courage, humanity, and hope. In his words, only when we understand the science of the mind and the power of love and nurturing can we hope to heal the spirits of even the most wounded children. Guys, this podcast is starting to open up a space where we can literally hear and feel the future of medicine coming. This episode is a living example of just that. If you guys have been enjoying this content, please rate it five stars on iTunes. It would mean the world to us. Remember that you can send us a message on Instagram or tag Medspiration in your stories. If you take a screenshot of this podcast and upload it into your stories, we'll share your story and start a conversation with you. So definitely feel free to reach out, guys. Let us know that you're out there and that you're listening. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Pygmonic. I personally use Pygmonic in my studies for step one directly off of my iPhone. Their learning system powers thousands of mnemonic videos and quizzes that have been scientifically proven to increase long-term memory retention by up to 331%. They help med students, NPs, PAs, PharmDs, RNs, LPNs, paramedics, and pre-med students rock their course exams, boards, and become more competent healthcare providers. Pygmonic has partnered with Medspiration to help make learning and memorizing easier than ever. So I know the CEO personally and we got you a pretty sweet deal here. You could check them out for free. If you sign up, you'll get instant access to a free video and quiz every day, no credit card required. You can use the promo code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any premium subscription. Again guys, I would really recommend checking them out and trying out their resources. I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll have a link provided to you in the description below. And without further ado, let the MEDSPIRATION begin. Dr. Bruce Perry, welcome to the MEDSPIRATION podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and today, We're also joined by a colleague of mine, Dr. Ajit Basra, who has been extensively studying your work for about a year now. Ajit, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Nav. My name is Ajit Paul Basra, and I'm a recent medical school graduate and will be applying for residency in psychiatry this year. I've been on Medspiration's board alongside Nav for quite some time now, and 
I'm honored to join you in speaking with Dr. Perry today. Awesome. So before we get into things, Dr. Perry, I want to take a second to acknowledge you for your contributions to medicine and to the world in general. G and I, we had the honor of attending the 30th annual Boston Trauma Conference, thanks to our mentor, Dr. Patricia Rush, and we completed her course on the study of trauma, health equity, and neurobiology, which led us to your work, the Neurosequential Model. I strongly believe that the evidence-based science that backs your work is the precursor to revolutionizing the way that we look at healthcare, the development of our youth, and how wealth disparity, politics, and inequality can contribute to chronic disease and mental health problems. So without further ado, Dr. Perry, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Bruce Perry. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I am part of the Neurosequential Network, which is sort of a community practice with uh, individuals and programs all over the world, kind of working together, trying to solve uh, interrelated problems to mostly focusing on bad things that happen to people as they grow up. And I'm honored to be on this podcast with you. I, I think what you're doing is really important. It's interesting, a huge part of our work has been in this translational process, trying to take things that uh, are emerging in, in basic sciences and preclinical science, and then thinking about what that means for practice, what that means for not just medical disciplines, but what does that mean for education and child welfare and juvenile justice and, and parenting. And so uh, we have a tremendous respect. I, I do and our whole working group has a great respect for people that know how to communicate. And then, so I appreciate this opportunity. That is amazing. One of the most mind-blowing things that, that I've kind of learned from your work is neurodevelopment and you know i went to medical school and i never looked at neurodevelopment the way that you know your book talks about which is uh the boy who was raised as a dog this is one of the best books i've ever read dr pat rush actually introduced us to this book she made us read many chapters of your work just <laughs> just so we could start thinking neurosequentially right and one of my biggest goals today is to illustrate to our audience what that means, right? And I guess the best place to start is, can you give us a brief explanation of how the brain development of infancy and childhood and what time periods are the most important? Sure, you know, that. so I, my interest in this really started back when I was an undergraduate and I had the opportunity to uh, work with and learn from uh, a, a sort of a pioneer in the neurosciences, Dr. Seymour Levine. He was studying, uh, using animal models, he was studying how early experiences, uh, particularly stressful experiences, influenced the development of the brains of the animals he was studying. And he studied both primates and rats. And one of the things he found out really early on, and this is back in the late 60s and early 70s, is that you can take really for uh, a five, six, seven second long experience mm -hmm. at the right time in development, early in, in life, could literally send a set of cascading signals to the developing brain that would ultimately have impact on how the brain functioned in the adult animal. And so when I started to hear about that, that wow, a, a minute long experience, a two minute long experience, 
could have this impact. I was, uh, you know, first of all, I was sort of my mind was blown. And then after that, I was like, wow, what's the mechanism? Yeah. How does that happen? Um, And so I started to learn a lot about development. And one of the things, you know, early on when you're learning about how the brain grows, you you run right up against this almost overwhelming complexity. You know, the, the human brain has 80 billion neurons. And each neuron has, you know, thousands of synaptic connections. And both the neuron itself and the synaptic connection it it creates with another neuron, which is sort of the functional unit of communication in the brain, both of those are what we call malleable. They're changeable. And so they're dynamic. We're talking about a dynamic system that has 80 billion plus moving parts. And that's just when you're looking at this on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. If you go inside the cell, there's magnitude greater, you know, orders of magnitude more dynamic processes that have to do with turning on certain genes, you know, protein production, protein transport. And and pretty soon, you know, when you start thinking about talking about what's the mechanism, you're like, oh, my God, this is impossible. How are we going to figure this out? And so, you know, the great thing about being kind of young and untrained is that you you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So you're like, we'll study this. Yeah. <laughs> Complex, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm young. I got a long time. I got a long life. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we started studying this, and we've been looking at it ever since. And so a couple of things that, that not just us, but lots of people that are doing this have figured out. Kind of makes sense, right? The earlier you are in development, including in the intrauterine period, mm-hmm. the more sensitive to experience is the developing system. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with just the general dynamics of physics, right? You know, systems that are more dynamically moving are that have more energy in them uh, basically will be more sensitive to external input. Oh, wow. So when you think we learned this all kind of in elementary school, right? So let let me just review for people that forgot this. When you're learning about the difference between a gas, a liquid, and a solid, you know, they teach it by talking about water, right? So water, when it's really got a lot of energy and moving and very dynamic, it's fog, right? So you can just blow at fog and move water molecules. So the input from the outside the energy required to move up molecules and to change that system is pretty minimal. And then when that system slows down and it's not moving as rapidly, it's water in liquid form. And you can move it, but it takes a little bit more energy. Yeah. And then if you really slow it down, it becomes ice. You know, in order to move it, you've got to chip away at it and you can move it, but it takes way more energy. And that's the way the brain is. Wow. The earlier in development of the brain, you know, as periods in the third trimester, when you, the fetal brain is making 20,000 brand new neurons per second. I didn't know that. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And so it, the mother that's carrying that fetus, her brain, if she's lucky, she might make 400 neurons that day. That, <laughs> she might, you know, mm-hmm. and that's still under debate. So 
if she does something that's neurotoxic, like drinks some alcohol and gets completely drunk, that may you know, impede that neurodevelopmental, you know, those 400 neurons are going to get messed up. Okay. Probably won't change her functionally. Mm -hmm. But if you basically impede normal development of 20,000 neurons per second during the three hours that she's really drunk, you're going to have a functional impact. And so this is, this is the kind of stuff that we started thinking about that, wow, the timing of, of an intervention, the timing of a good experience, the timing of a bad experience is going to be magnified basically the younger you are. Mm-hmm. And and so this this incredible malleability of the brain is a, it's both a gift but it's kind of like a double-edged sword that good experiences uh, can have tremendous impact like you can teach children language really quickly. When mm-hmm. you think about it it's pretty stunning that if you've ever seen a newborn baby and three years later, that newborn baby is basically acquired a huge array of functions. They're walking around. They're beginning to engage in abstract thinking. You know, they ask these really cool questions like, you know, where did the first person come from? And you kind of go, oh, Jesus. My six-year-old grandson is like the other day we're driving along and he, he goes, you know, where did the first person come from? I kind of told him the the routine story and then he goes well where did the fourth and fifth and sixth person come from and i'm like uh it's, it's basically he's getting at that like oh the brothers and sisters got married I'm like well uh, no we don't know exactly but when you think about that change in a very short period of time how much have you changed in four years a, a lot bit, you know but you do how to walk, you still know how to walk. Oh, absolutely. Functionally, I'm the same. You know, I'm so right. definitely not as much as a child. Yeah, that's for sure. So that that's kind of what we, you know, we, we focused on this a lot. And then we ran into this clinically when we started seeing, you know, kids that have been impacted by really terrible things that had happened there early. And part of what we would run into was this, is that we, we take kids that were, struggling they'd, they'd bring them into the clinic and they'd say oh this child has attention problems they can't make friends they have these meltdowns whenever they're told no and you take a little history and you go oh well they were adopted but the, but then they say but they were adapted when they were two months old and so from two months on they've been living in this household where people have been decent and kind and predictable and nice and now they're seven the family has a really hard time thinking oh my god i'm a failure because we, we parent our other kids this way, and they turned out fine. This child, we're parenting them just the same way, and and they're struggling. And, you know, part of what we've been looking at in the last 10 years is that these early experiences, just even in the first couple of months of life, turn out to be really have big, big, big power. Mm-hmm. So that if you have a developmental experience early in the first month or second month of life where your stress response system among other things is dysregulated then you're put into an environment where there's safety predictability nurturing love and everything that dysregulated stress response gets in the way of the developing child benefiting from all the good things that are being offered 
So even though they're no longer in that toxic environment, the impact that had on systems in their brain has these echoes. And as children get older, sometimes those echoes grow. And the more the families misunderstand that, the more they don't understand it, the kind of the further that that the divergence is between what you expect the child to do and what they're capable of doing. And then this is when that gap gets big enough, we start to pathologize. And, And part of what we've been trying to do is if you educate the physicians, the teachers, the parents about this, they can recalibrate their expectations. Exactly. And then begin to create experiences that are educational and therapeutic that will be where the child is developmentally. And you just, you just kind of jumpstart that developmental process and get back on track. Anyway, you guys can see why I'm not very good at sound bites. Huh? <laughs> no, no, no. That, honestly, that explains so much. And I love the analogies of, of we put chemistry into that and just kind of how neurodevelopment occurs. So I know that, you know, in utero, uh, what part of the brain develops? And then when the child comes out, like what part of the brain is developing? Does it go in order? And what what particular order is that? It, it's complex. I mean, it really, you know, it, the, the, the truth is it's it's not all like it's not like a complete layer cake, Okay. even though it's easy to explain it that way. It's more like a, a, if you think about a flower developing, it's kind of got the roots and then the, it unfolds and then it expands like that. And so early in life in utero, the systems that have to be organized are those systems that are in the brainstem that are going to be responsible for respiration, body temperature, you know, things that you need to do the moment you're born. Mm-hmm. Now, the things that are higher in your brain and the cortex that have to do with complex cognition you don't really need those yet and so they are undeveloped and so what happens is there's a sequence to the development of the brain in general it's from the bottom up from the inside out and from the back forward and so you know if you could sort of do it you have a three-dimensional model and sort of map sort of the locus of organization it would go you know from the bottom up and then forward and so what, what that locus of organization is, is really <clears throat> what we would call sort of the, the critical front so that the systems that are organizing in that area and in, in those parts of the brain are particularly sensitive to experience. And so <clears throat> if you take a newborn baby and uh, you don't touch that baby. You know, so the newborn, actually, the locus of organization of the newborn is sort of somatosensory. It's sort of sensory integration. It's developing regulatory capabilities. And so a fundamental part of healthy development is touch. Mm-hmm. So holding a baby and literally skin-to-skin contact for hours and hours and hours and hours a day leads to healthy organization of those systems. Mm-hmm. Now, if you did that very same activity to somebody who was 13 years old, that would be sick. You know, I mean, it'd be weird yeah, to, yeah, carry, yeah. to carry a 13-year-old around and to stroke them all the time and everything. And in fact, it would be abusive because you'd be impairing 
their ability to practice motor development and exploration and all that other stuff. So the timing, it's interesting. I, I remember I got a call from a caseworker in, in the child protective system, and they tend to call me when there's a big mess. Mm -hmm. And so the caseworker said, we really need your help, Dr. Perry. We have this case. And there's a, there's a mother who's like, you know, holding and rocking her child all the time and stroking the child and breastfeeding and talking baby talk to the baby. And I'm in my head, I'm going, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, it's like, yeah. And then she said, oh, 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 I forgot to tell you, he's six. I'm like, oh. So she literally had this pathological need to have an infant. So she never, she swaddled this kid from birth, never allowed him to walk, never allowed him to stand, kept him literally as a swaddled infant until age six. Mm -hmm. And so that stunted his motor development, his social development, his cognitive development, and, and what was what would have been completely appropriate behavior in the first months of life becomes abnormal as you get older. And so th th this is part of what is the challenge of development is that there are certain things that are really good for you at one age that are not good for you at another age. And and again, as, as we if you go back to what I was talking about earlier, if there's this separation between what a child is able to do developmentally and what the world expects them to do pretty soon the expectations of the world oh wow begin to create more problems for the child that that come confound the problems and this is a lot of what has happened with um many 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 of the kids that have what we call complex trauma mm -hmm. the world you know the they the, if you see them through the lens of the mental health world you see a child and go, oh, well, you have ADHD and you have uh, oppositional defiant disorder and I'm going to give you a medication. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to add another medication. If that doesn't work, I'm going to kick you out of class. And if that doesn't work, we're going to isolate. You know, you know, we do all of these things that are efforts to try and solve a problem that we've mislabeled. Mm -hmm. And it causes additional problems. And that's a big part of what we've been trying to do is help the medical community better understand that, listen, you have to put on your developmental lenses when you're understanding these complex children. And when you do, um, you begin to see these problems that you've labeled with from this old perspective are really not what you think they are. And, and the things that you've been trying to use to solve them, you know, we it's predictable that they wouldn't work. I think it's really important when you talk about how crucial the first couple months can be in terms of neurodevelopment and the effect that that can have on someone for the rest of their life. Because unfortunately, I feel like a lot of parents have this misconception that, you know, oh, the child won't really remember anything from then yeah. anyways. So, you know, it, you know, even if we're working, you know, 80 hours a week and they're with a, you know, a nanny or extended family or something, then, you know, it's not a big deal. Well, we'll be around when they actually start forming memories. Exactly. Okay. That's such a common uh, perspective. And, it, it, you know, it really, again, it's one of the reasons that, that a you know, show like this is important, that the more we help the public and young parents and policymakers understand that, you know, we have we really need to have uh, family friendly policies mm -hmm. so that the more a father and a mother can be home with their newborn, 
the healthier our culture will be. You know, and, and it's funny when you look around the world, you see that countries that have liberal uh, policies around uh, young families actually have much better outcomes in education, health, all kinds of other things that, you know, we're spending so much money to try and get better at that stuff. And I feel that we're kind of, it's like we're swimming upstream. We're, we're, we don't get it. So Dr. Perry, can you paint us a brief picture of what happens in a child's brain when they have suffered neglect or abuse and how that child is likely to behave? Yeah, I can, I can talk a little bit about that. And one of the things that both of you guys know, cause you, you know, mm-hmm. you've read about this and, and have studied it is that, uh, the specific challenges that somebody has tend to be um, related to the nature and the timing of the of the trauma or the neglect. But in general, it, one of the most common manifestations of early life neglect is someone who has problems with relationships. And, and th- that can manifest in a lot of ways. And one of the most common ways is that um, you know, that those, the, let me back up a second and just explain kind of normal development and then we'll go from there. So in, in normal development, you have a newborn baby, the newborn, uh, even though there are certain sensory cues and sensory stimuli that are familiar, the newborn still has not yet really met mother and they, they come out and all of a sudden they have visual stimuli. They hear the voice a little bit differently. There's a certain way that mom touches the infant. And all of that whole combined sensory bath starts to, to create a set of associations, memories, in the brain of the infant and in the relational uh, networks that, that we all have. And so the, the infant's brain begins to make associations between all of these human attributes of mom, her smile, the way her eyes are, you know, her tone of voice, the prosody, the, the, the music in her voice, and being fed and being warmed and being comforted. And so human beings start to become associated with uh, real pleasure and safety. And it's a nice feeling. And and so whenever the child kind of gets upset, they'll squawk or cry or express distress by their movements. And if the caregiver, mom, let's say, is present and attentive and attuned, the mom will come in and meet the needs of the child. And so what happens is this child gets this pattern of stress response activation where you get hungry, thirsty, cold, distressed, and your stress response goes up. And then you cry and somebody comes and then it goes down. Mm -hmm. And so there's this literally thousands of these little moderate activations that have a degree of predictability for the infant because the caregiver is so consistent. And these little infants are so self-centered about the way the world works. They literally think that when I cry, my mom comes. I can make my mom come. You know, I can make her come and meet my needs. And and to a degree, that's true. Yep. So that becomes to the infant the predictability of human beings. And, they, and human beings become good, consistent things. And so later on in that little infant's life, they become a toddler and they meet another human being. And that human being has attributes that are similar to mother. And so this child has the expectation that you are going to meet my needs as well. 
And because that's a positive thing, this little child sends out nonverbal signals of acceptance, of engagement, and smiles and is warm. And of course, that elicits from us because we're social creatures, we're contagious to that. We smile back and pretty soon it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Wow. Now, one of the things about the human brain that's really cool, it, it's, it gets us in trouble, but it's a really cool thing. It's also helped us get as far as we have gotten, is that as your cortex is developing, it becomes an anticipation machine. Uh, it literally is always processing stuff and running through different scenarios. And so it's looking for certain outcomes. Your brain is doing that. It has certain expectations. And of course, when the expectation is met, it, you feel pleasurable because, see, I was right. You know, my view of the world is right. And so when you see things that don't fit your worldview, your brain goes, forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that, and go, oh, see, I was right. Collective. <laughs> yeah. We see this happen all the time in like political arguments, right? Yeah. yeah. People Perfect. ignore this, they ignore that, they ignore that. And then somebody makes one comment and goes, see, I told you, he was a racist. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, now you might be right, but that's just an example of that meaning-making machine your brain is. It's just trying to make sense out of the world. So if you have good, loving, attentive humans in your life when you're young, you enter into other human interactions with the expectation that people are going to be good. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you usually elicit the best from people because of what you expect, right? Wow. Yeah. And this is, a, this is interesting because if you go back and look at the philosophies of all the great religions, mm -hmm. that whole concept of casting your bread upon the water, you know, mm -hmm. you get what you give, give, you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> built in there. That's a piece of cognitive neuroscience that all good observers of the world have have seen mm -hmm. now here's the sad part is if you grow up and the adults taking care of you are inconsistent unpredictable they hurt you they're high sometimes they are sweet and loving and then sometimes you do the same thing and they yell at you so you don't know what the hell to make about these people people are kind of like unpredictable and they're as likely to leave you as they are to comfort you. And so when you go out into school and you go out in meeting new kids, your brain basically keeps people at arm's distance. And rather than being able to benefit from all the good things that a teacher may be willing to give you wow. or benefit from all the things you can get from a friend, your brain basically minim it makes your world smaller. Now, let's go back to one other point here. That uh, Just keep that in one part of your head. Yep, yep. Sure. And let's go back and talk about a universal thing about the way the brain changes and grows. Mm -hmm. The fundamental principle of sort of neuroscience is the, the principle of use dependence. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so neural networks that are activated get more elaborate, more functional, more capable. You know, the more you read, the better you more literate you become. The more you practice a motor skill, the more you develop motor capabilities. And so as you grow up, your social cognitive motor development depends upon repetitions. Oh, yeah. Right? So if you are a three or four-year-old kid and your worldview is that I'm keeping people at arm's length, pretty soon because human beings are, are sort of contagious to the affect of other people 
and you're sending out signals of leave me alone, mm-hmm. kids stop engaging you. Yeah. And so you start to have fewer social repetitions and social yeah. practice and you fall further behind. And so you can be five years old, but only have had, you know, the same number of social repetitions that a typical two-year-old has. And then when you do interact with other kids, you act like a two-year-old. And they're like, what's with you, dude? I mean, why are you acting that way? And, And so you get this divergence developmentally. That's one of the biggest issues that happens with kids that have had developmental trauma and neglect is that their attachment and relational capabilities are immature, undeveloped, and they tend to, it leads to this vicious negative cycle. Uh, Exactly, exactly. And then the second thing that's almost always a universal phenomenon is that because their world is unpredictable and chaotic and sometimes extremely threatening, that is what we call a sensitizing pattern mm-hmm. of stress activation. And so there's the normal linear relationship between external challenge and internal response, internal stress response, starts to get distorted so that the tiniest little challenge will make you have an overreaction in your stress response. And so the normal challenge of uh, taking a test, for example, can be make a lot of kids feel a little anxious, I wanna do well, mm-hmm. but a kid who has that sensitized stress response, it can make them so overwhelmed that they'll have total cortical shutdown and they'll have like extreme test anxiety and they can't answer the question. And they won't finish the test and they'll get an F and they'll hate school. And then again, another vicious cycle. Wow. Um, I'm not dumb, but yeah. under performance circumstances, I can't perform as quickly or as efficiently because my cortex gets shut down by the distress. And then that leads to these kids getting over labeled as, you know, they get academically, they fall behind, they get a couple grade levels behind, they get labeled ADHD. Uh, they get put on Ritalin. The Ritalin doesn't work. They get put on Risperdal. That doesn't help so much. They get put on another medication. They gain weight. They they basically have pre-diabetic conditions, you know, that are put in place because of their stress response being abnormal. And then you give them these medications that change their cardiometabolic condition. And all of a sudden, you've got kids that are obese and, and at great risk for developing diabetes. And And this is where that interface between conventional medicine Mm-hmm. trauma plays out it's not just the only place but it's one of the most common areas um, increased risk for diabetes increased risk for asthma and it, it, both of those are related to this sensitized stress response yeah it seems like we're so focused on these tertiary consequences without really analyzing the primary causes of this whole snowball effect that you know you beautifully just laid out um I guess my next question would be, you know, a lot of these symptoms uh, of trauma that you've described, like the hyperactivity or the inattentiveness that sounds similar to diagnoses such as ADHD, um, often get, you know, miscategorized or maybe maybe misdiagnosed. Uh, How can we incorporate this knowledge to adequately treat someone 
that may have those symptoms due to trauma and not necessarily the uh, label that's slept. Excuse me. Well, I, you know, I think the biggest issue is education, <clears throat> education of our colleagues. You know, it's interesting. I've been involved in a couple of public engagement campaigns about sort of broad, you know, areas of interest in science. One is early childhood and brain development. One is about trauma and the impact on kids and stuff. And both of these movements actually had more uptake by non-medical practitioners and the lay public before the medical community would change their mind. And this is in part part of Again, you know, I remember when I was young and I came out of uh, my training and I know a little bit about this, not as much as we know now, but I had this really naive idea that I, I would just talk to people in the courts, the judges about this. You know, I was asked to testify in a case and I educated a judge about some stuff. And I had this idea that somehow that now that now this judge would continue to, you know, use that information. But yeah. It just mm-hmm. was not true. <laughs> and I, and it, it turns out that, uh, and I'm going to just, here's just the, the bottom line reality. If you don't have power, you're interested in different things. If you do have power, you're not as interested in, in new things. And so all of these ideas that we're talking about here and that you're going to next, your, your generation is going to push into medicine that there will be a big pushback by the people who are functioning and practicing medicine using their conventional uh, working models and conventional framework. It goes back to what I said earlier, right? That once you have a working model of the world, you ignore everything that doesn't fit that, and then you latch on to the one thing that does fit that. And I and it's it's so interesting. It's, it's the same thing is true of like our big systems, mm-hmm. and the working model of physicians about you know like psychiatry now is like desperate to have a legitimacy, so they're going after a reductionistic perspective. Or we're going to find the gene, or we're going to do whatever. And it's like, you know, and I, yeah, right. God bless. I mean, at some point we'll sort of weave all this stuff together. But you know, the reality is right now we know lots of other stuff that's clearly more powerful than finding the right gene. Um, and But you can't get people to change. It's very hard to get somebody to think about it. Think about if you had spent your entire life publishing articles <clears throat> about one point of view, one perspective, and you were the editorial board and you were in study sections and and you were, how easy would it be for you to tell yourself, you know, none of that actually means anything. Mm. You, it would be really hard. So that's not going to happen. There's a book you should read because it that talks about this. You guys are going you guys are in right in the midst mm-hmm. of a revolution. And that's part right. of what I want you to read is a, it's a book by Stephen Jay Gould. It's mm-hmm. called A Wonderful Life. Now it has nothing to do with medicine, but it has everything to do with the sociology of science. Mm-hmm. And the basic story is that there were some, it was, there were evolutionary biologists, and there was a certain view about evolution. Mm -hmm. And a group of folks went off to these, uh, found some fossils, they called the Burgess Shale up in mountains that I climb in in Alberta. And this evidence 
basically proved that the working model that was being held by these dominant evolutionary biologists was wrong. Yeah. And, but they completely ignored the data. First of all, there's three things that happen when you're, happens when you are sort of a disruptor and you come with this new evidence. The first thing they do is they ignore it. Mm-hmm. And then when they can't ignore it anymore, they basically attack you. Mm-hmm. And usually it, they attack the content and then sometimes they attack the person that brings the content. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is that they co-opt it. After they realize they co-opt it and then they all the people that brought it, all this new evidence are ignored or not paid attention to. That's just the nature of innovation. And that's beautiful. Just what you said right there. Yeah, you're right. So it's, it's unfortunate because what this essentially sounds like is one giant defense mechanism protecting your ego from having to admit that maybe you didn't know everything. Yeah, well, that's that is it basically. Now, now the thing that's really pretty interesting, and it's, <clears throat> you know, there are people who are secure enough in themselves that they continue to have a growth mindset. You know, we're big on neuroplasticity. We're big on the growth mindset. Our followers love it. Please yeah. continue. I'm just, I'm loving it. I'm loving yeah. it. So if if and you and I've met a number of those people, and I've been very fortunate to have been mentored by some of those folks, mm-hmm. and. Um, but you really have to be secure because it, mm-hmm. you're going to get attacked. The good thing is that um, truth is powerful. <laughs> you know, truth Amen. is powerful. Amen to that. And in the end, you know, the the these truths get through. It's an interesting thing to note, however, and you probably have heard this statistic that once something has been proven to be effective. A proven, you know, you got enough evidence that it is should be incorporated in standard practice. The time between that documentation of proof and incorporation into actual practice is between 15 to 18 years. Yeah. And actually, if you look at it, what that really means is, and, and now this is sort of a very harsh way of thinking of it. Basically, that's because of the critical mass of old guys who are in power, literally retiring, getting less active. And wow. It's, wow. It's nothing to you know, We talk about that all the time. It's not, <laughs> you know what it is? It's about old guys dying. It's not yeah. about any. It's not about being better at communication. It's not being having you know you know better more publications. And in fact, the irony is they tend to use this evidence-based shield to basically batter, batter down any new innovative things. And uh, when you sort of ask them about where's the, where's the evidence that this works or that why are you, you know, where's the evidence that Risperdal actually helps kids that have trauma? There's like none. Yeah. But they keep prescribing it, you know, so whatever. Anyway. It's, it's, a, it's a sad world when society's progress is measured by the lifespan of old people in power. <laughs> well, <laughs> It's one of those harsh realities, all right? I mean, this is why a lot of times you just have to have, you know, if you don't, and again, I'm sort of getting off into a whole different area here, but this is the nature of human systems changing. Systems only change quickly if there is revolutionary disruption of the structure of the system. That's the goal. I mean, patience and persistence. Our, Our generation... I feel like we're we're on to that. You know, we're on to what you're saying. And thanks to your work, I talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, um, 
the work that you and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk have done, like we, we get like, you know, rather than doing 40 years of clinical clerkship and like really practice before we come to these conclusions that you've come to, you've fast tracked us to understand this revolutionary work, which um, you best believe our, our goal is patience and persistence and, you know, kind of waiting for uh, the old ways to pass, I guess. <laughs> well, I have to say this is very gratifying for that, you know, that you guys and others see this and we'll sort of push this forward. I'll bet, bet I, I don't know what Bessel talked about, but I, uh, Bessel could probably tell you a million stories about those old guys. Oh, yeah. Basically ignoring data, uh, attacking him personally. I mean, all kinds of horrible crap. And uh, but he see the great thing about Bessel is that he's one of those guys who's like internally strong enough to just mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't care that much. Yeah. And uh, we have he and I sort of have been fighting the same battle from different directions. It's kind wow. of different styles. Um, and uh, but it's it's happened. It's going to happen. It's just one of those things where it, it's funny. Both he and I we've talked about this before. When we hear those people that were once calling us idiots using our own words, our own language, you just smile. You just sort of have to shrug you know, yeah. your shoulders yeah. and go, yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, Dr. Perry, so one, one of the greatest parts of the trauma conference uh, that we attended, we got to watch you and Dr. Bessel Vanderkoel kind of doing this dynamic that you're talking about. And, you know, when you got into your research, you started talking about the neurosequential model of therapeutics or NMT. And um, is there a way for you to explain to our listeners how NMT is used to regulate children and enhance their cognitive and relational capabilities? Yeah, well, the the, the neurosequential model is a – first of all, and, and you heard me say this when I was presenting, all models are wrong. You know, they're just yes. – you know, we're just – we're struggling with how to take these incredibly complex things – and make them exportable and practical, and and so, and, and we we keep changing it, we keep tinkering with it. But bottom line is the the neurosequential model is an approach. It's a way to help a clinical team or a clinician organize historical information about the child and their family and their culture, and look at their current functioning, so that you get kind of a snapshot. You don't get a real image of their brain, but you get a snapshot about how different systems in their brain appear to be functioning. And then based upon that, you can put together a treatment plan, an intervention plan that will uh, include activities that will provide sufficient repetitions for to change the systems that you're intending to change. So, for example, if the child has evidence of uh, fine motor control problems, you can put in place a whole set of motor activities that will improve fine motor control. And if they have trouble with self-regulation, you know, the mm-hmm. ability to kind of manage novelty and transitions you can introduce a whole variety of regulating activities that you can put in the day, both at home and in school, that will help the child, uh, number one, first of all, stay regulated, and then over time, begin to develop some mastery over regulation, which is that we call self-regulation. 
And so sometimes we'll teach kids strategies to identify situations where they're going to be predictably going to get upset. And so before that, uh, maybe we say, listen, let's what what regulates you? They'll say, oh, whenever I get upset, I like to go for a walk or I like to run. You know, I go listen to my music or I go draw or whatever they want to do. We say, all right, well, let's before you have one of these things, let's talk to the teacher and right before you go in and do this activity, let's take five minutes for you to go take a walk with somebody. Mm. And then 15 minutes into the activity, uh, let's do a little bit of a check. And if you feel like you want to do it, let's give you permission to have five minutes to draw or whatever it is. So we, we literally think a lot about the spacing and the, and the dosing of regulatory activities. And when kids do that with sufficient frequency – Pretty soon they develop the capacity uh, to get to the same point of regulation with fewer repetitions and with, you know, less time. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately they get to the point where their baseline starts to get back toward closer to normal. And, and then they can handle bigger challenges. And of course that's kind of what we do with normal development, right? So, we know that a four-year-old child can't handle a transition from one activity to the next without warning, right? We say we have a little bit of a bell before we say five minutes before we transition to lunch, start to get your stuff together. And then, you know, if you're in a pre-K, they'll put on a little transition song that they'll start playing. And kids know that that's when they should get up and then they have a marching song. And so they have all these aids. But by the time you're in high school, you know, the bell rings, go to your next class. You got four, you know, eight minutes or six minutes or whatever it is. That's true. And so once you are in college, they don't even, it's like, you know, this is the, this is the class. Uh, here's a midterm. Here's a test. I don't, we don't, if we see you the whole time, we don't care. <laughs> Just pass the test, yeah. you know? And it's so, so as you get older, you're given more, control over how you manage your time, how you make these transitions. Now, obviously, if you've got a kid who's got a four-year-old's regulatory capability and he's in middle school and the bell rings and he's supposed to go from one class to the next, he's going to have a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And again, we run into this stuff all the time when there's a mismatch between where you are developmentally and what the world expects you to do. So I get, I'm, I was just rambling there. So. No, no, that, that makes complete sense. And, you know, it's a perfect transition to talking about your book. Because you, you mentioned uh, one of the first children on whom you used your model on had suffered from severe neglect. In 1995, you met a boy named Justin in the pediatric ICU. Yeah. Um, and I want to give our audience a practical example of, of exactly what you're saying. So could you tell us a little bit about Justin? Yeah, this was, again, when I was at, um, both in Chicago and in Houston, uh, I was basically a hospital-based practitioner mm -hmm. and did a lot of consultations for the pediatric service. And one of the, con 
you know, so whenever they have like a really challenging kid that was behaviorally a problem, they'd call us to manage it. So like kids that would smear poop and, you know, throw poop and swear at the nurses and stuff, they, uh, they, they wouldn't want to deal with it. They get psychiatry, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was really good at poop smearing, you know. So <laughs> one of my specialties. I get Perry. Poops involved, get Perry. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, they called me into the ICU because this was a kid who had been throwing poop and throwing everything and smearing feces all over. He was in a, basically it was a cage crib. It was a crib, a steel crib, but they put a plywood top over it. And so it literally looked like a cage, but they put the plywood top over it because this kid would try to, try to crawl out and get out. And he was, and he, it, when I saw him, it was clear that he was, pretty um primitive you know he was he was uh naked and poop was all over and he's rocking and sitting in the corner and he was throwing anybody who tried to give him food he'd throw the tray and uh so it turns out that he was uh he was in the hospital for pneumonia and they'd moved into the icu because he'd been such a problem on the floor that they needed that level of sort of vigilance and, you know, people had to watch him. And, um, and his bottom line is this, is that he was a child who had been, you know, basically uh, had, had had a little bit of neglect early in life because his mom was neglectful. But then his grandmother took over and took care of him for you know the first year of his life basically and he was he was um she was morbidly obese she's very loving very kind but she was obese and sick and now she had a partner who was a was a very simple man. I very likely had borderline intellectual capabilities, but he had this little rural place where he raised dogs and did some other farming stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was a very simple, gentle man. They lived together and they took this little boy in. And, you know, when he was a basically a toddler, the grandmother died. And, this man was all of a sudden having to take care of this child. He'd never raised kids, never had his own kids, didn't know anything about kids, but he knew about dogs. He even went to the local child welfare and said, listen, I've got this little boy. It's not biologically mine. Um, you know, can you help me? And and they were so busy and overwhelmed, as all of our child welfare systems are. Yeah. They said, as long as, you know, we feel like he's safe with you and that's great and we'll try to get somebody to come and help and blah, blah, blah. And nobody came and nobody came. And every year he would take him into the pediatrician at Texas. I shouldn't even say, but at a very well-known. <laughs> <laughs> and they go to the developmental peds clinic. Mm-hmm. And they saw this little kid. Now, again, this is one of those things where they didn't do a developmental history, ah. which they should have. But they saw this little kid who had these problems. He was under-socialized. He's not very verbal. Uh, had some odd walking and gait problems. Would rather crawl. than. And, and they had no idea that what the, this guy was doing 
was while he was going off to work all the time, you put him in a cage with the dogs. You raised him like in a kennel. Wow. Because he was trying to keep him safe. He didn't want the kid wandering around and getting into stuff. So put him in the kennel. The dogs loved him. The kid loved the dogs. And and that's just the way he took care of this kid. And he, the kid had his own bed that was in a kennel. Every year he'd come back. And the pediatrician said he had a static encephalopathy, mm-hmm. which basically meant your brain's a mess. There's something wrong with your brain, and it's not going to change. And so they do they do MRI scans every you know every year. They he get his developmental peds thing. He wouldn't make any progress. And so when he got to be about <clears throat> I think it's five or six, he got pneumonia. Comes into the hospital. And they say he's got, he has static encephalopathy, so they're not going to do anything. When they say that, that basically means PT won't help, OT won't help. But, I mean, he's just got what he's got. Yeah. And, and um, I read the history and talked to the grandfather, and I'm like, I think this kid's got like a neglect-related syndrome. I tried to, you know, I finally, out of a grant that I had, I paid for all these services. Wow. And um, – it took a long time, but I went in and basically sat next to him for, you know, a long, long, long time, uh, you know, hours at a time. I just sit there and do my work. And 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 then I would move my chair a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And finally, he would reach out and sort of try to touch me. And, and then then I started to give him food. Mm-hmm. And then he started to interact with me. And, you know, it was you know, it took a while, but um you know, gave him control of that process. But little by little, he, he sort of trusted me and let me hold him, feed him. And then we got a physical therapist in there and OT people and speech and language people. And he started seeing us on a more regular basis. And uh, we he ended up going to an ex, a, a kinship that they, was sort of a distant kin um, and by the time, you know, it was two or three years later, he was able to kind of go to kindergarten and then first grade and did, I don't want to say fine, but he was, wasn't an animal. And, mm-hmm. and, and we had, so we had this sequential treatment process that started with very, very simple somatosensory stuff, a lot of regulatory stuff, a lot of therapeutic massage, traditional PT to help him regain some motor strength in areas where he had little atrophy um, and, you know, got into more regulatory stuff. Uh, Again, using a whole variety of really simple techniques like you know, rhythm sticks and music and movement, things that you do like when you're in pre-K. Mm-hmm. And it, it helped a lot that he was young and that he looked young. So mm-hmm. even though, you know, he went to kindergarten like a, maybe a year or two years later, but he was young and small and it, it didn't seem like he didn't really stand out. And the only people that really knew that he was behind at that point weren't his peers, but it was that the teachers knew a little bit about it. And he ended mm-hmm. up doing pretty well. He's actually, you know, he, he never went to college, but he's got a, he's a tradesman and, uh, you know, he's got a job and he's, he's got a kids now and he's a very loving father. It's pretty cool. It's a great story. I think that's groundbreaking. You know, when you're looking at a child, you get them 
And the medical diagnosis is basically, we don't know what's wrong with the kid. Uh, he'll never get better. There's no chance. And, you know, you develop a relationship with the kid. And eventually it goes on to show that neuroplasticity, you were able to kind of maximize his life because of this process, right? And that, to me, was one of the most powerful examples. It's one of the first examples that Dr. Rush had us read in the book. So like you were saying, I think it's more easily digestible for the folks outside of medicine, you know, sometimes that, that just having a human connection can start something like that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that, that even the reductionist folks that are doing science in neurosciences are recognizing that ultimately, as good as we get with reductionist assessments, ultimately we have to reconstitute the system. Yep. And that, that it may not, the approaches that we have that are fundamentally reductionist, if they're not yoked to sort of broader social cultural contexts, that recognize the power and the complexity of a relational interaction, we're not going to move any of our fields forward. I mean, and this is true of cancer. Yeah. This is true of cardiology. This is true of, you know, GI stuff. All of those disciplines have examples of relationally mediated uh, effectiveness uh, even and where there's relational poverty, ineffectiveness of even, you know, high quality evidence based molecular interventions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that this is that's a that's a, a lesson to all of us. We need to be able to use different lenses in our problem solving and our intervention processes, not just the lenses that take us smaller and smaller and smaller, but mm -hmm. the lenses that sort of take us bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. Not just in the present, but historically, right? I mean, there are social, cultural, historical things that have profound impact on health um, that a lot of times we just completely ignore. Yeah, and I think this uh, directly ties into one of the most important concepts in your book, which is the idea of painting a picture rather than assigning a label to a person. So just like we were discussing about Justin, you know, rather than slapping him with the diagnosis of static encephalopathy, if we take the time to really understand where he came from and how he became the way he is, uh, you know, a lot more can be done from that approach rather than the, yeah. you know, reductionist uh, traditional method. So you also use the quote, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, can you tell us how these concepts apply to psychiatry and psychiatric diagnoses? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that right from the outset, uh, my, you know, I'd be trained as a neuroscientist and I had a PhD in neuroscience, I had a neuroscience lab for years while I was training and in, you know, up until the recent past. And one of the things that I just knew is his brain's really complex, right? <laughs> so when all these people were coming into our clinics and 90% of them had, you know, one of six diagnoses, I knew that that was just th that, that our boxes were too big, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, that, and that the labels, the people that fit in that box, they had all kinds of different things they had to. The reason that was really challenging for me is I wanted to do research. 
And you can't do research about something if you don't hold many of the variables the same across your comparison groups. And I recognized that if we wanted to do research and we were using the diagnostic labels, the DSM labels, mm-hmm. as sort of uh, distinguishing characteristics in study groups, it would be meaningless. And, and that was hard for me to acknowledge because I was young and junior and all these people, literally every single article in my field was studies looking at comparisons of people that were in these big boxes. And I'm like, well, that's all bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was stuck. Now, what I decided to do is basically leave that model and go to a more descriptive approach, which is what the neurosequential model is. We just, we're describing what we see. We have a matrix of you know, how you function here, how you function here, how you function here, how you score here. And we use that to sort of do some of our studies. Turns out that a lot of the people at NIH, the National Institutes of uh, Mental Health, uh, felt the same way. And so they decided and they've started to develop what's called RDOC, the Research Diagnostic Criterion, which is now it's going now it's sort of on a it's going to take a while to do this because it's such a political process. But the, the bottom line is that they've basically said, listen, the, the diagnostic labels that we have have high reproducibility, mm-hmm. you know, but they have no validity. Which, and, mm-hmm. and so we need to, to do research using a different way of parsing out groups. And they've developed a very similar matrix to the NMT. It's it's not it doesn't have the developmental component, mm-hmm. but you know they have functioning in dom- a, v- a variety of different domains. And instead of you know saying somebody has X, they're just going to say here's the matrix of things that this person has, and we're going to match all the people that have this level of anxiety, and then we're going to see. Uh, you know, look at other things that we can control. Now, no, the problem with all of that, of course, is that in order to do meaningful studies, you need large N numbers. Yeah. So this is where we're way ahead of the field. Mm-hmm. Even if the RDOC, they finally develop all those criterion, um, you know, they're going to need 50, 100,000 people to be able to start to ask some of these really good fine-tuned questions. And and right now we have a, we using the NMT and our web-based approach. We've got um, sixty to seventy thousand cases. Wow! And we've got thousands of practitioners that are adding new cases every day. So the the idea of kind of yoking clinical practice with a semi-structured assessment process. And in a way that would allow us to look at the aggregate data in 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 a whole has actually turned out to be i mean it was intentional you never know if it's going to take but it's 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 going really well and so we've you know like you guys saw we just published another paper this last week using that data you know i think over time people are going to be more comfortable thinking about people as individuals Mm -hmm. rather than thinking about them as one of their adhd patients exactly and that's kind of, I think, the goal. The more we see people as people, the more we recognize the multiple ways that 
things that could lead to inattentiveness, the more we try to address the 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 whole of the person and the and the person in the context of their family and community, I think the more likely we are to be successful with some of these issues. But that's very again, you know, that's counter to the prevailing perspectives of a reductionist DSM, which is, you know, I, and again, I can see why they developed that. Yeah. In the beginning, yeah. that was a that was a that was a a useful model. But I think now that we've got the neuroscience and we've, we know so much more about the physiology of human beings and about social right. cultural right. things and about now it's time to say, all right, that model is no longer useful. You know, we yeah. gotta, yeah. you know, just, we need a new model. And one thing uh, I found really attractive about the NMT was that it really tries to understand what's going on beneath the surface. And so can you envision a way to categorize mental health disorders based on the underlying physiological mechanisms instead of the signs and symptoms like the current DSM does? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we, one of our partners is a neuroimaging organization, mm -hmm. and um, they're starting to develop some really interesting, similar algorithmic stuff to what we do where they're putting in all of, they've got a way to put in a whole a bunch of physiological measures, including, you know, some blood measures and other physiological things that you can measure. And then some, and then they have, we have the neuroimaging mm -hmm. that we can look at in, in a couple of different conditions. And so, and they've developed a, a very, very complex algorithmic way to use artificial intelligence to cluster people. And so they've got this very cool thing. I mean, you know, I'll show it to you at some point where you can say, all right, I've got this person who's got uh, this level of functioning in the locus ceruleus. Uh -huh. and, um, and they also have headaches and this. And you can push a button. You can say, I want to see, find me people in our database that have something similar to that. And it's unbelievable because you start to see people that have, wow, you know, these things run together and then these things don't run together. It's very complex, but I think ultimately that's what it's going to be. We're going to have artificial intelligence driven uh, matrices of, of um, sort of algorithms that mm -hmm. uh, appear to be associated with, with different syndromes. Because uh, there's sort of the you know we 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 know that in in animal models I mean this some one of, some of my favorite research is has to do with looking at we have these very simple animal models where we know that it, you can have a specific gene uh, genetic difference that leads to a very different phenotype mm -hmm. um, and you can but you can have very, very subtle environmental things that can have the same, you know, different genetics and get to the same phenotype. And then you can do all kinds of things where you will get different phenotypes through different environmental routes. And so you've got all these different ways, even in a very well-documented, very simple system, that you can end up with the phenotype, which we, in our world, the simple. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, it's again when you think about the complexity of the human brain, 
it's like mind boggling. Yeah. So uh, it's and it's awesome. See, for me, that's exciting. For some oh, people, yeah. that's gracious. That's what we're about. That is what we're. About. Yeah, it's, that, it's pretty cool. From an epigenetic standpoint, I think that's just that's something that's mind blowing. And you know, one of the things that we started up uh, speaking with Dr. Bessel about was the ACEs, adverse childhood yeah. experiences. So our audience out there, they have a really good understanding about how adverse childhood experiences can go on to lead to chronic disease over time, which to me, when I you know, was raised in this model of medicine, going to medical school out here, um, I didn't know that that was the case. It, it took seeing the research and actually digesting it and understanding, wow, you know, this makes a lot of sense because when I look at real life and I look at my friends and I look at the outcomes I, and I see how their childhood was and I see what direction they went, it all just it all made sense, you know, and um, this is kind of where we get to addiction. You know, what role does childhood trauma have in developing addiction and, you know, creating a violent individual, basically? You know, so how, is there something like that? Well, you know, it's uh, addiction is, a, again, like any comp human thing, it's complex. But what we do know is that if you look at people that struggle with drugs and, and have addiction issues, uh, they have a much higher rate of having had developmental adversity, but either uh, attachment-related developmental problems or overt exposure to uh, chaos and unpredictability in their household because their parents were struggling with alcohol or whatever, and or exposure to community or uh, in interpersonal violence. And so we know there's a relationship there, but it's not linear. And and that's one of the things I think is always important to keep in mind that, you know, you can, I know people that have nine adversities and don't have any, you know, they're very healthy. Uh, they're mentally solid. They're good with relationships. They've got all kinds of other things that are going for them. And I don't know whether that's because they had, they started over here on the hardy part of the spectrum with regards to genetic gifts and then they had relational supports along the way mm -hmm. but i suspect that as we start to parse all this stuff out we're going to find certain people who are uh will be born where with us more vulnerability than others Mm -hmm. And the degree of chaos and adversity that leads them to negative outcomes will be less uh, than for other people. And um, but there's there, there, there's no doubt that the majority of people that struggle with ongoing substance dependence have had developmental adversity, particularly in context of interpersonal relationships. A good person to read about this and, and listen to, he's got a, a couple of really nice things on YouTube, is Gabor Mate. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's written a book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a physician uh, who practices in Vancouver and has practiced there for years in an area that is a uh, very high concentration of people that have mental illness and substance abuse issues. And he's become a very powerful advocate for social justice. And he's about health inequality and about the way we pathologize and demonize people that struggle with drugs. Gabor Matei. 
In your article titled uh, Incubated in Terror, you lay out an interesting sequence of developmental experiences about how certain experiences or lack thereof can predispose someone to violence. Uh, In light of the recent mass shootings, can you take us through what this sequence might look like? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I, I wrote that chapter at a time in U.S. history when the level of uh, gun violence in Chicago and in other cities was higher mm-hmm. than it is today. Wow. Um, and I know that you guys have been living through what's been going on in Chicago, and it's terrible. But mm-hmm. actually, it's not as high as it was back when we, you know, when I wrote this article. Part of the reason I wrote the article, the chapter, was that there were people talking about super predator youth. And it was a very racist perspective on youth violence. And I wanted to help sort of make people recognize that you can do the violent acts end up again. They come from different trajectories. Mm-hmm. You know, there are kids that end up who are have, you know, low IQ, who are easily, you know, want to be part of the group. And if they're in a you know, in a community where everybody has a gun and they happen to be reactive and uh, and they go in to a 7-Eleven because, and, and somebody disses them, they might impulsively shoot somebody. But that's very different than a predatory act. You know, they didn't go in to the 7-Eleven with the intention of killing somebody. And so it was trying to help people understand that you know, you can have kids that are individuals who develop an emptiness, a disconnect from other human beings based on their early attachment experiences. And but without some connection to a hateful belief system or a worldview that makes them feel like they're being threatened, mm-hmm. that's in and of itself isn't going to cause the problem. Mm-hmm. And then you can have kids that are reactive, right? That kids that will blow up and that very easily will, you know, take offense. And if they don't have access to a handgun, you know, they'll just get pissed and yell at you and swear at you. And that might regress into a fist fight. But if they got a gun, they'll shoot you when they get upset. And then there's the individuals who have this combination of sort of they don't feel like they've been included they don't Mm -hmm. feel like they belong they develop anger and rage towards others and then if they are have access to weapons and they uh, start to identify with other marginalized people there's a higher probability of a hateful belief and whatever that hateful belief is it's it could be anti-muslim it could be you know anti-cops it could be anti-blacks it could whatever it is that is part of the, the, that toxic recipe. And when those things combine, that's when you get people that do these horrible, horrible things, I think. You know, and I think you know, the people that have done sort of the forensic evaluations of this, one of the things that they find, they, they find really two things, is that one is that there is some um, sort of marginalization, attachment related, maybe neglect related, sort of emotional neglect related component, sort of an adversity component. 
And then the other one is um, that there's some hateful belief that gets filtered in there somewhere. And, um, you know, although I would say that they did, that, you know, when they look at, for example, the guy that did the, the Las Vegas shooting, yeah, they don't find, you know, they're still looking to understand that. Um, but, you know, it's, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But the one common thing I know is that you can have people like if you take every single one of the people that committed these mass shootings in the U.S., you can find a counterpart in China and Japan, any other country in the world. You could find a person that has sort of that mental, that mindset. Mm -hmm. But what we have in the United States is easy access to guns that can kill. The guy shot, what, 70, 80 rounds in 30 seconds? Yeah, Dayton, Ohio. I mean, that was the most amazing response you can imagine. Yeah. Like Thirty seconds. Yeah. Right. Think of that. They, they still killed all those people. They, but they saved dozens of lives. So. Yeah, I know. God anyway, so I think that's why I'm a really. I I think that one of the yeah there are multiple ways to sort of that we're going to have to act to, to change this. But I think one of the key ways is to manage access to, to guns. I don't think. You know, sure. So, uh, you know, besides gun reform, what are some other ways that you think the current justice system or violence prevention programs are failing at primary prevention of violence? See, I think that they're 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 starting too late. Mm. I I actually after after Columbine, Scholastic magazine wanted me to sort of write about that. And I said, listen, I can't tell you really what's going on in the minds of these kids. And I can't tell you necessarily, you know, how to identify somebody who's going to be like that. But what I can tell you is how to develop a child who's not going to do that. And that's where I developed. That's where I wrote that six core strength series. I don't know if you guys have seen that a little bit, but basically about, listen, if we do these six things, we build these into our kids they're not going to take a gun and shoot somebody. Yeah. And, and so that's where I think we need to start. We need to help create environments where our kids uh, are in high attachment early life experiences. And that means taking care of young families and parents mm-hmm. and, you know, develop self-regulation capabilities and, and skills starting early, early in life, develop really intentional programs uh, around affiliation and tolerance and respect and all the things um, that help us appreciate um, and learn the skills to connect with other people and and to celebrate the incredible strengths that come from diversity rather than use that to d- divide us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth is, if you really understand biology, if you understand, you know, what makes a any living group healthy it's diversity yeah you know if you study biology i I mean i study animal biology all the time because i like the outdoors and any ecosystem that has homogeneity it's on its way down diversity is health and it's Mm -hmm. the same thing with human beings I, I mean, I'd like to add uh, diversity and I think women's empowerment, because I can imagine that a mother that's overwhelmed would not be able to give the baby the proper stimulation experiences that it needs. So absolutely you know, true. Being, 
a majority of the primary caregivers. Yeah. No, that's so true. Well, Dr. Perry, we're going to start moving into the last portion of our podcast. And before we do, I just want to read one of my favorite quotes that you put in your book. You wrote, it is often when wandering through the emotional carnage left by the worst of humankind that we found the best of humanity as well. And I feel like, you know, we've talked about a lot of emotional carnage and a lot of things that, you know, you can find a lot of darkness in. But I'm a, I'm a huge believer that that's exactly where the light enters and that's where the healing starts. So I think the best of humanity will come from this. Um, and that's something that, you know, for our philosophy, we always like one of my biggest dreams is to leave this world better than what we found it. You know, and when we have people working together towards that, I believe anything's possible. And you know, I'm willing to work the rest of my life for that. So uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Amen to that. It's very powerful. So with that, we're going to get to the last and most popular portion of our podcast. So we have our audience submit questions to you. And a lot of our audience have read your book. They were reaching out to me. They're like, yo, that's one of my favorite books. Changed my life. So wow. we had a lot of questions submitted to you. We had our team siphon it out and we picked the top four questions. Great. So question number one came from Angelisa55. She asks, how long on average does it take an adult to get over childhood trauma? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, here's the way I would say this is that you don't kind of get over childhood trauma. You, you, you learn how to carry it in a healthier way. Mm. Um, and it's, it's like a lot of things, you know, when you loot, when, when, uh, you have a terrible experience, it will, it will change you. And as it changes you, um, as you said earlier, now that, you can find light. I mean, you will see amazing things from people around you and you will get a certain form of wisdom that you can't get if you Mm -hmm. didn't have hard things happen to you. So one of the things about individuals who've had abuse as kids, they have this opportunity to become wise. Yes. And to give back to the world things that others can't. And and so I, I think that that is a lifelong component of that experience. And it doesn't have to be a lifelong bad component. Yes. I, I think that people carry it forever. Yeah. They can learn how to carry it in a good way and they can learn how to um, take that terrible gift and turn it into a you know, or that terrible experience and turn it into a gift. Yeah, I, I'm in a thousand percent agreement with you. Yeah. I haven't shared with our audience, but, you know, when I did my ACEs score, it was an eight. And mm-hmm. I was like mind blown myself. I was like, man, I had a pretty messed up childhood. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, it took a lot to be able to go back and understand why I became the way that I was. But it was that growth mindset, you know, and it was that seeing things as an opportunity, just knowing how to soothe myself. So I meditate every day. It's been six years, you know, and it's like I have to know when I'm getting dysregulated for myself to be able to soothe myself down to see something as a learning experience. But I, I also do believe that, you know, where the greatest darkness is, that's where the most light comes from. And, you know, in many ways, I, I love having created Medspiration because I feel like now I also have 
a lane where I can share things with people and, you know, we get such a great reaction out of it. So for anybody out there who's going through a lot, you know, I 100% believe that, you know, what may seem like your greatest weakness right now can one day become your greatest strength. So question number two is how can someone minimize flashbacks? Yeah, this here's let, let me just tell a little thing that we did. Flashbacks are basically things that where your brain is basically um, re-experiencing some aspect of a previous traumatic event. And what we found is is that if you actually take control of when you intentionally think about the event and do that in a structured, controlled way, the number of flashbacks you have will decrease significantly. Wow. So, for example, what we did is we, we would take kids that were in some traumatic event, like a car accident where their parent was killed, and we would have them write down, the just tell me, you know, the cognitive narrative of what happened. I was mm-hmm. driving in a car, period. Another car ran a red light, period. That car hit our car and, you know, a very, very simple script. So write a script, a cognitive script of what happened and take that card out four times a day and read it, start reading it to the point where you feel just a little bit of distress and then put it down. Now that could be 20 seconds. But if you start doing it, if you start taking control over Mm -hmm. when you think about it and do it in moderate, predictable ways, pretty soon the power for your brain to process it without your permission goes down. That's amazing. I imagine it takes a lot of courage, though, to be able to face that experience head on and say that, you know what, I'm going to be in charge of this now. Yeah, it do, it does, and it helps a lot if you have like a clinician that will help you or a friend. But you know, later on, if people want to write, I mean, there's just a. I'm happy to share with you guys a very simple way to to get that started. Okay, great. You know, I completely agree with that as well. One of the things that I've learned to implement into my morning meditation, uh, after I do breathing techniques and mantras, I'll pray. And after that, you know, I I started taking time to visit my inner child, right? And um, I allow the inner child to dictate where I'm going to meet him. But it's it's usually a traumatic memory that I have of my childhood. But I'm in my adult form, and I and I go meet the child, and I know how the child's feeling because I was the child, you know. And what I do is reassure the child and and play with the child. And I've actually noticed that. It has dramatically helped me process the things that I saw as a child, you know. So uh, and that kind of goes in line with what you're saying, Dr. Perry, where, you know, you having control of small exposures, it helps with emotional triggers, you know, and it helps the processing ability. And like you said, I think you live with it forever, but it could become your greatest superpower if you learn to see things as a lesson in, in my view. So no, that's I- a- I agree very much. I think that's very true. And, I, and you're doing exactly what, I, what we're recommending. You're doing it probably in a better way because wow. you proceed it with a regulatory activity, which allows you to be able to tolerate a little bit bigger dose, right? 
Yeah. If you tried to do that same thinking without doing all the other regulatory stuff, you would have to stop quicker. That's true. Uh, you know, Lil Nob used to play video games when he was stressed out. So I'll actually go in there, sit down with him, play video <laughs> games before before well, I already know how it feels. The thing about communicating with your younger self is you don't have to say anything. You yeah. know, because you know how you felt. And you know, when you tell when you tell yourself the truth about where your life ends up and how, how you can inspire other people, uh, you give your younger self hope. And that's just something that, you know, it's it's pretty mind blowing. So um, and I'm so grateful that we have this conversation because I, I hope it helps someone out there, you know. Um, so question number three, Gerline asks, what percent of mental illness is linked to trauma? You know, the different studies have looked at this in different ways. And, and probably the most accurate, sort of the most, I'd, I'd say, thorough and conservative study of this <clears throat> says that about 59% of children's mental health labels can uh, definitely be linked to, uh, or at least some aspect of their manifestation linked to trauma. Wow. And somewhere over 35 to 40% of adult yeah. mental health uh, problems. So a significant portion wow. of active diagnosed you know, mental health problems have a trauma link. And I think if people look more carefully at that, they'd probably see those numbers go up. Absolutely. And uh, DocSpired asks, what advice do you have for someone who is going into healthcare and would like to be trauma-informed? Well, I think one of the first things to do is to look around your own community. There, you know, there's going to be, there will be people who are like-minded uh, at your medical school or your organization. Uh, connect with them. They're both online resources that you can connect to. There are a couple of, you know, ACE Awareness, you know, ACE Connection is one sort of advocacy group. Uh, I know that all of our professional advocacy groups is American Psychological Association, the, the uh, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, whatever group you're in, there is going to be some formal trauma-focused group. And, uh, and again, that's one way to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. I always find that that so I, I like self-study. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that uh, an easy way to start that is to just start looking around on the Internet. I mean, there's tons of stuff on YouTube. Uh, there are a number of really good resource materials uh, that you can get. And, and then there's some really good books. Vessel Vandercook's book is a really good book to read. And um, in your book as well. I mean, I yeah. highly, highly recommend that to any of our listeners that would like to know more thanks <laughs> I, always, I always feel uncomfortable self-promoting <laughs> oh no no i mean hey if it changed our life as future physicians and physicians um i believe anybody could benefit from it so um last question dr perry what yep. is your definition of medspiration my definition would be an organization a, a, a individuals who are dedicated to creating hope and a vision of a better world uh, and the way to actualize that uh, by working and living in a different way. Amen. All right. Love it. Well, Dr. Perry, we thank you for being on this podcast. We thank you for 
the wealth of knowledge that you've given the world. And we are gracious to be able to share that. So thank you so much for your time. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling inspired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. For example, our newest sponsorship with Pygmonic is currently helping us fund our ongoing work at a small children's school in Cambodia. If you're currently a future healthcare professional and are studying tons, don't forget to check out Pygmonic's learning tools for free. You can use the discount code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any membership. Please visit pygmonic.com for more. We'll be sure to leave a link in the description below. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.